0: Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Graetzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to Episode 71. Great show uh, online for you today. I'm very happy to have a new guest on the show. A lot of really interesting uh, insights into a subject that I think is all too overlooked for a variety of reasons. But before we can get into that, I just want to do my little song and dance for Counterpunch. Uh, I try to do it before every show because... I really do value alternative media. I I really do value the kind of independent spaces online that we have to really examine critically the burning issues of our day. And uh, if you've been following the news recently, you'll see that the alternative media is under attack. The so-called epidemic of fake news is in many ways a pretext for undermining and attacking the alternative media, in particular, the alternative media on the left, of which counter punch is in my view uh probably the best example counterpunch really does stand as a bastion of free speech it stands as a uh i think a signpost for the left a place where ideas can be expressed and fought out oftentimes ideas that are in 180 degree opposition to each other. And I think that is ultimately incredibly valuable. So if you agree with me, you can go ahead and get a subscription to the print magazine. It's a great way to support Counterpunch. It's also uh, wonderful to get it in your mailbox, to have it uh, reading material. I still have issues from like four issues ago that I haven't read all of it because I like to kind of leave it for, for later time to read. So always a good thing, but you can of course also donate to Counterpunch using the PayPal on the website or, you know, any other uh, avenues for making donations. Uh, And finally, if you like Counterpunch Radio, help us to spread the word about the show. Give us a positive review on iTunes, post us on other message boards, uh, spread it around, Reddit and Twitter and all the other places that people do such things. Uh, That would be greatly appreciated as well. Again, we don't charge for the podcast. We don't give you any advertisements. We don't hawk the products other than what's already on Counterpunch. So... Maybe that's a good way to help us. Anyway, let me turn to my guest this week. I'm so happy to have her on the program, Uh, Sabia Rigby. She is an activist with Voices for Creative Nonviolence, uh, and she has traveled the world and worked with many different communities, many different places, and had a lot of, uh, I think, very valuable experiences for uh, all of us to really listen to, to learn from. So uh, with that in mind, Sabia Rigby, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you very much. So, I want to start uh, by giving you a chance to tell us a little about yourself. Um, Where, you know, how did you get into working with uh, communities around the world, particularly refugee communities? Uh, How did you get into that? And um, how has that shaped who you are, shaped your political outlook? What brought you to this point?
1: I was born in Dredoa, Ethiopia. Uh, And my father was working for UNHCR, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. And in 1993, they picked me up from an orphanage and I traveled the world with them. Uh, And so that's a little bit of a background. And that's why watching my father do this work, meeting the communities, um, it felt natural. And when we moved To the U.S. in 2000, Um, we moved to a very small, small town. And again, I was drawn to marginalized populations to kind of do the work and um, be able to listen and support. And then I went on into Peace Corps and um, I worked in Uganda where there were many Eritrean and South Sudanese and Ethiopian refugees. And so from then on, I was pretty much, uh, plugged in.
0: So, um, Obviously, there is a personal connection to this issue, but I also want to get a sense of how these experiences have shaped your view of the world, shaped your view of the conflicts that have created so many of these refugees. This is one of the fundamental uh, questions, I think, of our generation. And so, um, you know, where did you start in terms of your political outlook and how has that shifted over time?
1: When I was younger, I didn't think I was very political at all. I just thought I was uh, doing what everyone was doing. Uh, Unbeknownst to myself, I was very, very wrong uh, and disappointed in a lot of ways, especially when it comes to bigger governments and individual people that have the means to um, give back to their communities. So I think when I started working with the refugee population and listening to their stories and hearing how connected they were to their politics and why they were driven out or why they left, uh, I started becoming politicized. So,
0: so that's an interesting, that's an interesting question then. So in, in, in many ways, your politics are really shaped by the politics of the refugees that you've worked with.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I mean, obviously, as you said, for personal reasons, I do listen to the news, and I do travel a lot, and I uh, I make sure to be in touch with my family in Ethiopia right now, who uh, before December uh, for the for two months their any source of social media had been shut down, and so that was incredibly um, difficult for me. Um, but I could not imagine what it felt like for them, and then suddenly my aunt sprung up out of nowhere and was just like, "Hi, how are you and i 'm thinking, "What in the world is going on over there? You know but there there it is, and so yeah, it just by being so close to it, there's no way to not be involved, and there 's no way to turn your back on anything like this.
0: Right, exactly. And and again, I, I don't know how anybody could really work with refugees and work with uh, uh, those types of communities and not be deeply politicized by it because, of course, their own personal experiences, their human experiences are impossible to divorce from the circumstances that created them. I mean, it just stands to reason.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: So I wanna I wanna ask you about some of your recent uh travels and specifically um your experience in so in the so-called jungle in Calais. Again, for listeners, uh the jungle as it's called is essentially the what, what amounts to a holding area for refugees in the north of France. And uh it's become in many ways an epicenter of a lot of the politicized um talk or propaganda about refugees and migrants and uh, uh, Sabia you were there and before you get you know you really get into detail I want to just try to get a little bit of a flavor of the place I mean upon arriving there what does it look like what does it smell like what does it feel like uh, for somebody who has never been there who doesn't know what uh, the jungle is about give us a little bit of paint us a picture if you could. It smells
1: like, right after it rains, it smells like that. So very earthy. Um, There's a lot of sand. And it's just built by tarps and random pieces of wood, cardboard boxes, a lot of tents. Um, And there are a lot of shops. Well, there were a lot of shops and there were um, little stands, little dukas selling groceries. There were places selling shoes. There were uh, tobacco stands. There were so many barbers and salons. There were incredible tea houses and restaurants. Um, yeah, it was a wonderful, sometimes tumultuous community that learned how to work together, live together, laugh together and be together and carry the hardships that they had to face together.
0: Well, let's talk about some of those hardships. I mean, obviously the journey itself to get to that place is in and of itself a hardship or a series of hardships, but how about actually in the camp or, or you know, in in, Cal, in the jungle, um, what was, what is life like or was life like for the refugees that you were working with? I mean, did life go on relatively as normal or was every day kind of a struggle for survival? Maybe both. Uh, you know, what, what was it like on a day to day level for those people?
1: They would wake up and they would go and eat, but they would just try and recreate their lives where they were. You know, there was a mosque, there was a church and, Even though they didn't have means to work for most of them, they would talk about the future and they would find ways to help in these restaurants or in the barber shops or in their clothing shops. Um, Their sleeping spaces are maybe the size of a a dining room table for the most part. Um, And you can see them sometimes if they're, if they have the chance to be in a in a trailer or a camper for some reason uh, a local organization or just people like you and me going in there wanting to help they'll donate a trailer and it's full you know it's full of maybe eight to ten people and all of their stuff um, going in and out trying to kind of recreate their life
0: so that 's interesting so so what what you were seeing then in in uh, in that place was essentially the organic development of community based relations I mean the kind of thing that a lot of us talk about in the abstract in the theoretical, but out of necessity, it seems to have kind of emerged there
1: exactly exactly it 's incredible well it was incredible, sorry. Um, Because they would also have community meetings, you know, each of the communities, the Pashto community, um, the Dari-speaking community, so the Afghans and um, the Sudanese, the Eritreans, the Ethiopians, they would would just have community meetings, they'd figure out what was going to happen that week, they'd figure out how to work through that, how to make sure that... um, just to kind of keep themselves safe, their communities safe, how to get food, how to get shoes, all of these things.
0: And what about, um, outside, outside, um, you know, uh, individuals, right? So, um, obviously you have aid organizations, you have volunteers, you have stuff like that. You have people there for, you know, the best of intentions, but we've also seen on a number of occasions, people who have been there for the worst of intentions, um, whether, whether it's to commit crimes or to attack the refugees out of hatred or what have you, um, a little bit, a little bit of the negative side. I mean, did you see any of that? Did you talk to people who went through that, who were victims of that? Uh, what, 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 what sense did you get about uh, that uh, aspect of their lives?
1: It happened on a weekly basis, uh, and that was really difficult to listen to. But I cannot imagine having to go through that. So sometimes the police will just do things so that they will react. Um, they'll like steal their shoes or steal whatever is outside their dwelling place I don't I don't know why anyone would do that especially seeing what they have and well what they don't have Um, other times yeah it was groups that would come in and just terrorize the place or people would pick it outside I remember um, once we got a group of our of the refugees that we were working with, so mostly South Sudanese and Afghans, when we got them to um, a reception center, they were welcomed in the morning by really wonderful volunteers. They had tea, all of this stuff, they found their rooms. And then in the evening, obviously we, we couldn't go because it was in a different part of uh, of France. And we kept getting messages saying, you know, there's a riot going out outside. And and what it was, was local people and people from miles, miles around who had come to protest saying, we don't want you here. You need to get out. You know, you can't have this. You can't have that. We, you know, it was just it was outrageous. And these poor men were just confused because they're not there to take anything from anybody, you know, that that's not really why they came. And that's not really why anyone would trek 13 countries, eight countries to do that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, just out of curiosity, uh, on on that particular incident, or any of the incidents, uh, do we know, Uh, Any particular groups that were involved? I'm specifically thinking of supporters of the National Front and Marine Le Pen, who is uh, in many ways poised to potentially become the next president in France from the far right, deeply racist, deeply xenophobic uh, political party that has tried to rebrand itself as something center right. Uh, Was there any indication who those people were, who they might be affiliated with, or was this just kind of, you know, just a mob type situation?
1: They did not clarify that. I think to us, it just seemed like a mob situation, but I do, I'm sure that they had the leanings for sure. And and it is a scary thought uh, to think of Marie Le Pen for me. And I I just, I worry for the populations that we were able to help. And I worry for those that have fallen between the cracks, especially the minors um that have disappeared
0: so yeah let's 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 talk a little bit about that um what have you heard uh andor you know uh you know witnessed perhaps i guess uh in regards to uh the children, forced disappearances. We hear a lot of talk about that. We hear uh, quite a bit about uh, sexual crimes, um, sexual crimes both by people who are in the camp, but also by people who are from the outside. Uh, how much of that did you hear about andor or see?
1: I, we went to a camp that was affiliated with the Calais jungle, and um, it was run by traffickers. And so when we went in, it was very difficult to figure out who we were talking to and if they were a part of the ring or not. Um, And so that is disheartening uh, because a lot of the refugees will go there because they know that these traffickers will give them first choice on whatever vehicle or um, transportation they want to get on in order to get into the UK. Um, And a lot of them were women and um, yeah, their stories were pretty horrific. And so there's another place in the jungle that uh, Jewel Ferry that takes a lot of the women refugees because of these issues. But, along their route for the men and women and children they faced a lot of sexual crimes and and other violence and so the mental health aspect of of what happens to anyone making this journey is not a good one you know it's incredibly traumatizing and it takes many many years or maybe Perhaps forever to kind of work through stuff like this and and more um, rejection and violence and hatred is not is not the answer.
0: Well, there's no doubt about that. But I I, w- I want to touch on what you just mentioned specifically the trafficking networks. Um, to what extent did was that uh, pretty much the same story with everybody? I mean, in other words, is. Is every refugee or maybe not every, but is the are the most of the refugees there uh, having traversed however many countries by using these trafficking networks or were some of them victimized by them and kidnapped by them? Or, you know, I'm just trying to get a sense of how many of them were able to make it to that to that point, you know, on their own and how many of them were, let's let's say, you know, human trafficked or smuggled.
1: At the beginning, it was definitely, well, why they were fleeing was not their choice, but they were on their own making their way. And then suddenly when they started getting into more regulated countries, that's when they were more forced to use these avenues of smugglers and traffickers. Because a lot of these families and individuals felt like there was no other way to reach This end goal of England or another European country that would um, allow them asylum and give them shelter and give them protection and give them uh, a job or some kind of life.
0: My, 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 my question though is also about, uh, economics and class, because one of the things that is often overlooked is that a lot of the refugees, or maybe a, a better way to say this is one of the misconceptions, uh, from, I think, a, an ethnocentric Western perspective is that these are the, the, the poor and the downtrodden of these countries, but in fact, to a large extent, they're not. I mean, many of these people, in order to make this journey, had to have some kind of resources, some kind of money to be able to make it this far to pay the traffickers or, or what have you. So did you get a sense of the class uh, orientation of these people? Was it across the board? Was there a general tendency towards these uh, people being to what to whatever extent middle class you know I, I hate to use that term but uh, what was the class uh, uh, makeup of the refugees so for
1: for many of them you are exactly right I mean the the Syrians that we spoke to my goodness and the South Sudanese yeah for the most part that's you're dead on, you know, they were doctors, lawyers, people like that. Exactly. They had a great profession. No, they did not want to leave it. They did not want to lose it. None of that. You know, they were on their way to do what they had done or get more education. There were engineers. It, it's amazing. It's amazing to the extent of of what kind of hardship you will go through in order to make yourself a life and and a livelihood and a peaceful one at that because yes they and and you're you're right again with the extortion when it came to the smugglers for for some of these stories i mean they would the smugglers would beat them and then they'd make them call their families for more money i, I mean this is not a journey for for fun or for i don't i don't actually know why people are so adamant to to slander th- these populations
0: I think that there are a number of reasons and I've encountered it myself. It's actually one of the major reasons why I uh, broke relations with a lot of people who I think have been deeply, uh, not only racist, but also uh, deeply neo-colonial in their attitude towards these refugees as if the refugees are somehow me- subordinate to the politics. In other words, I'll give you an example. One of the major issues that I've come up against personally and fought with them, many people over is the question of refugees from Syria. And many people who uh, take the uh, you know d- uh, the position of defending Assad and defending the Syrian government will say, "Well, mo- if the refugees who left Syria look, that's mostly young men, and they're mostly from the rebel side, so they're either traitors or they're cowards or they're both." I mean, this is the kind. There's- this is the kind of rhetoric that, sadly, is actually. Pretty common i mean on i 'm speaking specifically about the Syria issue, but matter of fact i 'm sure that could be generalized more more broadly, and so that 's one of the reasons I asked the question so that we get a sense of who these people are rather than merely the, just you know the the teeming masses as a product of political circumstance
1: right right, and you 're right you 've helped me answer that a lot of a lot of the situations also in Calais. Um, city was exactly that and on top of it it was watching in their eyes watching the the government give protection and health care to a population that does not belong there you know Um, and that that was also very difficult to watch because again these people did not they they didn't even want to be in calais you know they want to reach the uk because a lot of them have families Or a lot of them have people they know there and they have networks in the UK so that they can start a life again. Um, And between the UK and the French government, who I think together have a GDP of like 5 trillion, I was incredibly disappointed to witness what happened to the refugees and migrants in the Calais Jungle.
0: Well, you know, in in as we see a resurgent of uh, a resurgence of uh, far right wing uh, fascist ideology, uh, as we see it increasingly in France, in in Hungary, and in Britain, and obviously in the United States as well. Uh, as this has gone on, I think a lot of that mentality, a lot of that perspective, has become normalized to where you know even people who consider themselves ostensibly liberals or on the left are kind of kowtowing to the right, you know, about white working class people and working class issues. And let's forget about, you know, the refugees. We can't handle the refugees right now, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, in other words, the refugees are a mere inconvenience and. To a large extent, I hate to say it, but a lot of the left is implicated in really minimizing the plight of the refugees for political gain. And that's absolutely intolerable as far as I'm concerned.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Especially when we see where the money goes, you know, and how mismanaged a lot of the resources are. A lot of it could have been done so much easier and it would have taken less money for either of these governments.
0: Absolutely. And again, I mean, uh, we're talking the British government and the French government, which uh, are not so not 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 just a little bit implicated in literally every single conflict that we're seeing, uh, resulting in these refugees. I mean, it's not like the British uh, have any responsibility in West and Central Africa. It's not like the French have any historical responsibility, or the U.S. for that matter. So there is there is that you know that that pesky little question of imperialism and colonialism that have created this crisis, and then of course obviously the uh, shirking of responsibility as a result of that.
1: Exactly. You know, watching the Ugandan government work with their refugees, I'm at a loss for words watching our government and I'm at a loss for words watching the French and the English government, because I'm thinking Uganda is very small and it has less money and it has less resources, but it has managed to take in millions the same with Kenya and Tanzania. Uh, I don't I don't get it.
2: Yeah,
0: well, you know, I think that um it's as I said, it's a product of politics. It's also I think that there is, there is again this sort of. I mean, we we have to say what it is. There, there is the supremacy of whiteness, white supremacy. I mean, the the very idea that these people being be be it from Afghanistan or from South Sudan or from uh, you know Somalia or wherever that they're coming to Europe and they're co- or they're coming to the United States, they're going to sully. Our culture—they're going to uh, water it down. They're going to destroy that which is, you know, what 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 makes us great. This mentality, you know, whether it's "Make America Great Again" or what, you know, or the parallel of it in Brexit, this mentality has now been mainstreamed. And unfortunately, for these, for for the millions of refugees, they're the number one target.
1: Right, right. There is a lot of scapegoating, a lot of scapegoating. And this uh, this right, right? You have the right right now to have all these prejudices and act on them. That's the scary part.
0: Right, exactly. It's been normalized.
1: Exactly. You have permission to do that? I, I cannot believe that I am in this country as a woman of color and... I'm going to have to just listen and practice and learn from Counterpunch and others like your um, your company and organization and group to try and figure out how to best, what step do I put forward, you know?
0: Well I think that we're equally learning from you as as we're as we're talking here because I think this is important So why don’t we take a quick break and then on the other side of the break I want to get into some of the other aspects of this issue and and, and get a little bit more uh, understanding about some of the uh, uh, ethnic breakdown and some of the associated issues So uh, uh, stick with us. I’m chatting with Savia Rigby uh, again uh, voices for creative nonviolence this is a very very important organization uh, if you You heard one of the early episodes of this show was with uh, Kathy Kelly, the great peace activist. Uh, That's the organization that she's associated with. I'm very happy uh, to be speaking with Sabia about these issues. So anyway, stick with us. We will be right back.
2: You're asking what is socialism and what is all well, rights for every man, regardless of his strength man. So don't let no one fool you, Joshua said Listen as I tell you, Joshua said No man are better than none, socialism is love between man and man Socialism is love for your brother Socialism is thinking Harsin Would you believe it? Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting Socialism is Sharing with your sister. Socialism is People pulling together Would you believe me? Love and togetherness That's what it means Mr. Bigger trembling in his shoes Saying he's got a lot to lose Don't want to hear about suffering at all Joshua said One man of too many While too many have too little Socialism don't stand for that, don't stand for that at all Socialism is love for your brothers Socialism is linking hearts and heads. Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting Socialism is sharing with your sisters Socialism is Socialism is love for your brother. Socialism is thinking hearts and ends. Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is.
0: And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Savia Rigby, uh, activist from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Uh, vcnv.org, am I right? Sabia? Yes, yes, exactly. vcnv.org. Uh, do check them out. Do support their work. I mean, Kathy is going to Afghanistan regularly. She's got a group that she works with there. She is, uh, you know, leading the organization in this campaign against drone bombings and many other things, an excellent organization to support. Uh, anyway, Sabia, I want to get back to your experiences working with these refugees. And one question that always comes to my mind is, um, To what extent do the refugee communities that you've worked with, are they making the connection between their struggles, their uh, journey, and the circumstances that created it? In other words... Generally, people coming people coming from a lot of uh, a lot of these countries can be, you know, maybe unaware of some of the politics that have brought them to that point, or maybe naive about what the attitudes of Westerners are towards them and towards their country. So uh I want to get a sense of to what extent were these people making those connections? Were they politically aware? Did they have a sense of the context within which they were uh living their lives?
1: Yes, definitely. There, the government's uh, South Sudan. So one of our wonderful friends, Hussein. Their relationship to the government, it it's not as it's not as um, separated as it is here. You know, you can really see it. You can see what's happening. You can see why it's happening. You know, he knew why his village was taken over. He knew why they wanted it. He knew everything. He was the one who said, oh, you know, this was it was all political. Yes, it was horrific because they shot everyone in the village. But he knew. All of them knew. Even the Eritreans, they would say, you know, this is why, this is why we're here. The Syrians. They were. That's the thing with this population. Well, the ones that I interacted with, they knew exactly why. They were forced out
0: well tell us tell us a little bit about the syrian uh the Syrians that you spoke with because that's such a hot button issue and particularly divisive on the left i'm I'm just curious um what uh what did the Syrians tell you about what brought them there um did you get a sense of their political affiliations. I mean, were they predominantly pro-rebel, anti-Assad? Were they a mix of the two? Um, You know, tell us a little bit about the Syrian population you worked with.
1: They were definitely a mix of the two. Wassam was very vocal. um, And he was, well, he was pro-rebel. But um, I think these community was, they would come together and then they would talk They would talk it out and then they would realize, like, look at you, look at me. Yes, we might have been on different sides, but we're here now. And so that means that they form a different group. And it's one that is nonviolent because what has happened is that these feuds have broken their homeland. And that was what identified them. That's what they identified with was Syria. Syria was this mother, was this father was everything to them and then suddenly it was up in flames and it was nothing that they had done and so that I think because there was that removal of what they could do and what they couldn't have done there was this coming together and understanding you know what we're so much stronger together and we're stronger when we can understand our differences and still live together. But they were so calm. It was unreal, you know. They would just be laid back and talk about the situations. And I I wish to see that here between the polarized um, parties.
0: That's very interesting. So anti-Assad and pro-Assad or pro-rebel and anti-rebel sides would live side by side, speak to each other, communicate, uh, maybe even work together on, on certain issues. Imagine that.
1: Yes, yes. Drink lots of tea, lots and lots of tea and just hang out and realize that the one thing that they were not about was violence. It had really crippled them and crippled their home. And Syria is beautiful. I was there when I was young and yeah, it was beautiful. So I,
2: I, yeah, I mean,
0: it's, imagine. it's it's definitely one of the tragedies of the 21st century. There's no doubt about that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the Afghans that you worked with. I know that Kathy has, uh, has spent years and years working in Afghanistan regularly. And so um. Tell me a little bit about the Afghans you worked with. One of the reasons I'm asking this question um and actually this is something that Kathy brought up when I talked to her a while back as well that you know we often forget especially in the United States because you know the war in Afghanistan has dragged on for so long that it's not even a news item literally anymore you know uh I mean you know Kim Kardashian tweets are bigger news than stuff that happens in Afghanistan and um so One of the things that Kathy brought up to me and has really stuck with me is just to consider what it must be like if you're 20 years old now from Afghanistan and literally since you were five years old. There has been a war going on with drones flying overhead constantly and bombings and killings and kidnappings and, uh, you know, the the explosion of heroin trade, the opium trade, uh, all of these things that have happened to Afghanistan, the people who are coming from there now, predominantly young men what are they like? I mean, what is their experience like? What is their mental state like? I mean, would you what percentage of them must have post-traumatic stress disorder at this point?
1: All of them. Yeah, All of them. That's what I would I, think. And you're right. We have been the US government has been in Afghanistan now for 15 years and uh just the the youth are I mean, there was there were so many that actually had made the trek all the way and gotten into the UK, had lived there for five years and then gotten deported and ended up in Calais. And then we're going to try to do it again. And, and then now there I was reading, uh, I think it's Germany was deporting Afghans because Afghanistan has been said to be safe again, which is ludicrous. <laughs>
2: I,
0: it almost boggles you know it boggles the mind really to 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 consider that um now those who have made it from afghanistan i mean are they generally uh people from you know somewhat uh, relatively affluent families in Kabul, or, I mean, I, I'm just trying to get a sense of what kind of people are coming from Afghanistan. Is it, you know, city dwellers from Kabul mostly, or, I mean, do you have a mix of people from the countryside? I mean, I, you know, I really honestly don't know, uh, what is the makeup of the people coming from Afghanistan?
1: That's a really good question. Cause the, the Afghans that I made met, they were mostly from Afghanistan. I mean, they were mostly from Kabul, but Kabul is growing so rapidly because the towns and cities around it are becoming less safe. Right. And so, yeah, they all said that they were from Kabul. That's a-
0: how, many, how many of the people that you encountered uh, uh, you know, in these various communities, how many of them traveled uh, as families versus uh, traveled as single males? I mean, roughly, obviously, ballpark.
1: The majority were definitely single males. I think I saw, uh, actually, hmm, we met maybe 20 families, and then the rest were all single males. Yeah. Right? Well,. And-
0: and that's one of the things that's one of the things that always really uh, rubs me the wrong way about, um, you know, some of the what I consider to be condescending and or uh, hateful uh, comments about refugees is, um, you know, this idea that they're like infiltrators into Europe, that they're terrorists. And what's the proof? Well, look, they're all single males. Clearly a fighting age, clearly single male. So clearly they have the worst of agendas. I'm sure it couldn't be that it's a treacherous and dangerous journey that no person in their right mind would want to send their wife or daughter on. I'm sure that has nothing to do with it.
1: Exactly, exactly. I mean, and a lot of these are are minors. You know, they're 17 and under. Yeah. And when they get there, some of them have been in the it well in the cali jungle they had been there for two to three years and so they were 15 now and they were really scared because of all the rules and regulations about minors and what counts as a minor and then some of them looking older and not being minors and oh my goodness it's a terrifying uh, moment for these youth because they're thinking what does this mean you can just pick and choose you can leave some you can take some I mean then the one night where there were 300 to 400 minors sleeping outside because they had um, the government had effectively burnt down the camp
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: had not figured out what to do with these remaining minors and then just left. And so you talk about prime pickings for smugglers and traffickers. There you go. You know, you basically handed these minors over and it was awful. It was incredibly, you know, again, more traumatizing for these minors, but also for the volunteers that had to sleep around them to make sure that nothing got at them. You know, it, it was a mess
0: one of the one of the other things well actually before i get to that i just want to ask uh this other question um we hear a lot about uh refugees um showing up in europe without passports without documentation claiming to be syrians when in fact they're from any number of other countries um and of course uh you know the claim is always that uh that they've done this because syrians are getting special treatment for political reasons and maybe they have a better chance of uh being allowed into a country which i'm sure uh there's truth to that but i'm just curious um you know did you get did you get any sense of that? I mean, did I'm not that you were going around asking people for their paperwork necessarily, <laughs> but I mean, you know, what they had to do to get there maybe some somewhat dishonest things, anything along those lines?
1: There was a lot of that when it came to who was a minor and who wasn't a minor. Mm-hmm. I I mean, other than that, not so much. There were a lot most of the people I talked to didn't have papers and You're right, it doesn't help because uh, at one point the UK government said that they were only allowing South Sudanese and Syrians in. Um, That means you're leaving out the Afghans. Mm -hmm. And the Eritreans, the Egyptians, um, the Libyans, the Yemeni, the Ethiopians, you still have a bulk of the population that you're just leaving behind. And so you're right. There are, I'm sure there are some that have tried to get in any which way they can. But again, like you said, again, it's, it's not to do some harm. It's to start life over again.
0: Yeah, you're doing we anything would, you we can would do the same. Of yes. course. I mean, yes. It's like a no brainer. Would, would I throw <laughs> away my documents on the off chance they might let me into a country so I can live at peace and have a family and a normal life? Gee, let me think about that. Right, right. Um, So um, one other question about that, uh, you know, and again, I don't know whether you can answer this or not, but I'm just curious what percentage – roughly, of the people that you communicated with, that you spoke with, came via the route from Turkey and Greece versus those coming from Libya uh, across the Mediterranean. I mean, the, the flows of the refugees, if you look at the statistics, if you look at the research, they kind of have shifted one way or another and then back again. So I'm just curious, was it more like Uh, Eritreans, South Sudanese and stuff coming through Libya and across the Mediterranean while Syrians and Afghans were going through Turkey? Or, I mean, what's your sense of that?
1: I would say about... I would say 42% came through the Libya route and they had the most shocking and horrific stories
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um, about that journey. The rest... A lot of the, like, oh, I, I forgot the Iraqi Kurds. So the Iraqi Kurds made the trek that you were talking about um, from Turkey. A lot of the Afghans, the Pakistanis, mm-hmm. Syrians. Uh, and they would all say to me, the, the ones coming through, um, through Turkey, they would say, you know, the whole journey, as awful as it was, you could have made it. And then suddenly when we got to Europe, it got incredibly difficult you know yep. what is going on and i'm thinking well that's how they've kept it running you know
0: yeah basically um you know and one of the other questions that really occur- occurs to me in 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 the course of this conversation is that Those of us who were active uh, in opposing the war in Libya, vocally and vigorously opposing the war in Libya, were very closely listening to uh, uh, what Gaddafi said before he was assassinated. And Gaddafi said, this is exactly what would happen. He said that there would be a flow of refugees once they destroyed Libya. Libya would be a chaotic mess and that the refugees would be flowing from Africa and from the Middle East into Europe. And that this was essentially the price that Europe was going to pay for doing what they did. And here we are six years later and all of that has come true. And the reason I bring that up is because I'm just I just want to nail down whether or not the people who are being impacted, the people who are going on this journey, do they have any conception of that? That the wars that the U.S. and the British and the French and all of the rest of the colonial powers, that the wars that they have been waging have directly created this situation.
1: The Afghans and the Syrians have, in my experience, have a better concept of that macro um, lens, Mm -hmm. but for For a lot of the South Sudanese, their angle was much more of the struggles between Sudan and South Sudan.
0: Well and 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 that alone is an interesting point because it was the United States that was the driving force between uh, behind dividing that country in 2011 in the first place and much of it had to do with the oil reserves in Abye province which was coveted by the Chinese so you know I'm not saying that they necessarily have to know the you know the deep politics I guess behind it but you know that's just what strikes me is that if you're South Sudanese and you're you know running for your life obviously it's from the the, the ongoing civil war between, you know, the forces of the, the Salva Kiir's government and Rik Machar's, you know, rebels, but it's also about the U.S. and Israeli policy in carving up that country in the first place.
1: Right, right. They they see it from an angle of ethnicities and tribalism.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And And sometimes when you hear their stories of women joining to become soldiers and the acts that they've had to do. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Politics and propaganda plays a huge part. Huge part.
0: So I want to ask you this question, because this, uh, as we're kind of approaching the end of our conversation, um, you know, I was just, I I was just sitting uh, in my living room last night, uh, speaking, speaking with my partner. And she said, um, you know, gosh, I, I really want to help these people. We're watching a thing about refugees. And she was like, I really want to help these people. But, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what I could do. So. What would you say to somebody like that? Uh, You know, obviously there are probably specific organizations, including uh, Voices for Creative Nonviolence. But in general, when somebody asks you that question, how do you respond?
1: I normally say, when do you want to start? (laughs) (laughs) I, I do, just because especially for New York, for Chicago, where I am, As you said, there are many organizations doing this kind of work, and there are many ways into all of these countries, including the United States. And so um, in my evening job at the homeless shelter, I have befriended an Afghan family. I have no idea how they got into the system like that, but they're here and we're helping them find an apartment, So they're gone, they've gone through that avenue. But I also know other refugee families that have gone through um, refugee services like Refugee One and um, Heartland Alliance. So it, it is a matter of when do you wanna start and how much time you have and just knowing what you can give. You know, some people they can give money and do not downplay that, that is incredibly useful. Um, some people, they can give their time, and that is incredibly useful. You know, there are so many avenues to be of use. You just have to say, I want to start now, and then you have to not judge yourself of how much you should be doing. I mean, thank goodness you're doing something.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, the other thing that I would say, and I'm obviously I'm not, like, you know, the uh, an expert on all of these issues, but, I, you know, I remind people who are in the U.S., you know, We don't have the same refugee flows as you're seeing in Europe, but we have plenty of our own. All of the U.S. wars and U.S.-backed governments in Central America, the death squads, the people fleeing from Honduras for their lives, the people fleeing from El Salvador, the people who are fleeing from Haiti, from from other places in the Western Hemisphere, who are coming up through Central America, through Mexico, desperately trying to make it into the U.S., those are our refugees, and there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Thousands of them. Exactly,
1: exactly. If you want to see another Calais-like camp, exactly, go go where the Haitians are on the border. It's <sighs> there are so many there are so many groups, and all they're, all they're needing as as we do on a daily basis is your compassion and to see them as equals. It's not pity they they desire compassion comes when an equal sees an equal and and,
0: no go ahead I'm sorry
1: oh no I I just I just wish that we weren't so afraid
0: yeah absolutely right um you know I I just want to just popped into my head I'm just out of curiosity um how many of them worry about the political developments in Europe and the US? I mean certainly if I'm a if I'm a refugee from Central America, I'm terrified of President Trump. If I'm, you know, fleeing to France, I'm terrified of a, a Le Pen, you know. So I'm just out of curiosity, do ha- have any of them expressed any concerns
2: about that?
1: Yes, definitely. The ones that are in France and have Claimed asylum in France are incredibly nervous. Uh, they they don't know, they're just waiting and they're wondering what's going to happen now. But the resilience that they have built up and the trauma that they have seen, a lot of times, a lot of the the men that I've talked to, they were just kind of like, all right, you know, I've seen this before and I've done this before. They've practiced this, not by choice, but they just their life experiences have made them ready for absolutely anything. But yes, they hope for the best every single day.
0: And if you and if you ask the a refugee, how can I help you? What would they say?
1: After saying, "Please enjoy a cup of tea," they would say, um, "Please share my story." You know, a lot of the times it's, it's that simple. Especially if they, if they really, really know you, they're just thinking, hey, sister, do you know that this has happened to me? Could you imagine that this could happen to another human being? And that people have allowed it to go on. So can you just share it? And so, when you emailed i was I was grateful because these stories are they're just sitting here, you know, and I and I feel a duty to do something just like you, just saying, "I can't just sit and watch this happen. We know what, what has happened when that has happened, and I don't want to go back there again. I don't want to create an you know Rwanda all over again. I don't want to be silent.
0: I don't want to be silent is probably the phrase that we should all be repeating right now. So, what are what's next for you? What are what's next uh, on your not being silent journey?
1: I'm actually going to Afghanistan January eighteenth, so I'll be I'll be working with the Afghan peace volunteers, um, working on the duvet project. So yes. going house to house, trying to figure out. Uh, doing the needs assessment and then giving families blankets so that they can survive the winter
0: that's great. Um, that's great. I, and again, listeners, go back to, I want to say it's like episode six, maybe. But uh, when Kathy Kelly was on this show, we went into great detail about the uh, the, the blankets program that they're doing in, in Afghanistan in the wintertime. It's excellent uh, information there. Okay, so finally, um, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, telling us these stories. Um, I think it's so important, especially as the media environment around this issue becomes ever more unpalatable um, So just tell people again uh, where where they can find you and your organization's work online. What should they be following? I mean, I don’t know whether you're on Twitter or not, but if you are maybe you Twitter and other things that you want people to know about how to get in touch. Right. so
1: please go to our website at Voices for Creative Nonviolence vcnv.org. Um, we do have a Twitter page as well, and you will find all of that once you click onto our website. There is a Facebook link and a Twitter link. So, and always, always, please read Counterpunch.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure for me. I know that I learned a lot. I'm sure that people listening have learned a lot. And I just want to thank you again for the uh heroic work that you're that you're doing. I mean, I you probably don't want to hear me say that, but it's it truly is heroic work and I'm and I'm deeply uh grateful for you coming on the show.
1: Thank you very much, Eric. I'm really grateful too to be sharing these stories and to have networks like you to be able to discuss and share these
0: worldwide. Thank you so much, listeners. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Uh, Have a great holiday and speak to you next week.